Good morning, you guys. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. Uh, John mentioned this in announcements, but I wanted to make one quick last reminder to you guys. This Friday is our deadline for summer projects. Um, and particularly, I wanted to mention one thing to you guys, uh, and specifically to you guys. Uh, Y'all may not know this, but John and Brittany are actually leading our trip to Greece uh, this summer. And currently, at least the last I know, there are 13 girls signed up for this trip and one guy. So, guys, to y'all, let me say uh, a little challenge to y'all. Y'all are being absolutely showed up, all right? So, if your pride doesn't get you to think about it and pray about it, then maybe this will. There are 13 girls, all right? Numbers are in your favor, all right? Also, imagine College Station transported into a Grecian country. Uh, up in a mountain with a lake, that is essentially where, the, where we're headed in Greece. Uh, we're going to be starting for the first time ever in a new city in Greece. Our, last summer was our first time ever to go to Greece. Campus Crusade has allowed us to enter into a brand new city that we've kind of adopted and is going to be ours. It's going to be up in a mountain range with a gigantic lake um, and with a strong university right there with a huge college uh, student population. And so just a great deal. It's a lot like this place except put, put yourselves in the mountains and add a lot of feta. All right. So that's kind of what we're talking about this summer. But we'd love for you guys to consider that. This Friday is the deadline. So really pray through it. Consider it. It'll be a great chance for you this summer. We have trips going to North Africa, to East Asia, and also to Greece. And so We'd love for you guys just to kind of consider and pray through it. It'd be a great chance. But why don't you pray with me, and then we'll kind of jump into this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are the Alpha and the Omega, um, that you are the creator, that you are the sustainer, that all of life began with you and it continues with you. And Father, yeah, we also give you great thanks that in the midst of our own transgressions, in the midst of that which we've ruined of a relationship with you, you've in your kindness and in your grace moved towards us. Uh, that you pursued us from all of eternity with your loving kindness and your extension of mercy and grace, and you've granted us that which we don't deserve. And yet so much of this life, we're broken, we're helpless, we're like sheep that have gone astray. And Father, we ask this morning in the midst of wounds and scars and the different things that we bring into our lives, Lord, we pray that you would just give us understanding this morning. And as we wrestle with one of the hardest questions, Lord, I pray that you would give me wisdom and that you give me clarity as I speak and that you would allow this time to really be powerful. Uh, That you would move in the midst of our lives, in the midst of those things that we've walked through, that you would even allow some things that have been unsaid and things that we've not even thought about for years, that you bring those to the surface and that you allow us to consider things that you might be doing in our lives, Lord. Pray that you give us wisdom, that you give us humility, that you give us even courage to look at some of the things that have happened in our past, Lord. We ask you for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, there are certain things in life that I think you only grasp by experience. Uh, no matter how much textbook ex- reading you may take, no matter how, many, how much classroom instruction you may receive, there are certain things in life you'll never grasp. That's why there's no part of you that would ever want a fresh out of med school grad to do his first brain surgery operation on you, right? You want a guy that's actually had a little bit of time in the medical operation room in surgery that's not just sharpening his skills for the first time on you. It's also why there's no words that can describe the awkwardness of your first kiss. That's right. Horribly awkward, all right? Um, And some of y'all are just staring at me. Maybe it was just me, but it was horribly awkward, all right? Uh, There are certain things that just come by experience and come with mastering and learning by experience, right? That's why the first time you ever started driving, you didn't just jump on Highway 6. You didn't just jump on Central Expressway if you lived in Dallas, but you popped off on some empty parking lot and you learned how to drive, right, with a trusted family member or hopefully someone's someone's car that wasn't yours as you began, right? Uh, There's certain things that you just grasp by experience, no amount of textbook learning, no amount of classroom instruction will ever prepare or help you understand certain questions and certain answers. Honestly, this morning as we kind of wrestle with this idea of why is there so much evil and suffering in the world, I will tell you, here we are in a sense in a classroom setting, and yet it is a question that never begins in a classroom and is never answered in a classroom. It is a question that never arises from an intellectual curiosity, but it is always a question that arises straight out of the, the burning and the scars of life at times. 
Um, and it's a question that you find bedside at a hospital, that you find graveside at a funeral, that you find in the arms of those that are hurting, in the arms of those that have been rejected. And it is in that place that it arises, and it is in that place that it's answered and it's learned. And yet here we are in a classroom setting, and we're going to wrestle with it because I think it really fits into our series of hard questions. You know, we start off with, hey, is there absolute truth? We've moved to, is the Bible reliable? Then now we're coming to this big bad buoy of, what, what about evil? What about suffering in the world? The reason why I think it fits great with our series and why we're going to start off with it even here this early in the semester is because, frankly, many theologians and many critics of the Christian faith will argue that this issue is really the underbelly of the Christian faith. Really, that part that is the soft underbelly, the the, uh, vulnerable, the, the part there is no shielding, that the Christian faith has no explanation is that area that, that for many of the wrestle and they, they come to Christ and then life happens and then they think, you know, if Christ can't fix this or if Christ can't prevent it, then I'm not going to continue with Christ. In fact, many of you may have run across a quote or thought like this before. This came from a college student who said, I just don't believe in the God of Christianity exist. God allows terrible suffering in the world so he might be either all-powerful but not good enough to end evil and suffering or else he might be the all-good but not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, the all-good, all-powerful God of the Bible couldn't exist. This issue of evil and suffering is a gigantic issue. And for many of us, it's not just an intellectual issue, but as you've walked life out, most of us are here not because, and most of us would ask the question, not because we have an intellectual curiosity, but because life has happened and it's left us with the question. And the reality is all of us are familiar with it. Um, Honestly, I think many regards that uh, it's not just big issues in life, like how could there be so much devastation and horosities in Haiti? But for many of us, it's just even in smaller things. It's the frustrations of my day. Why does my car battery go out? Why does my car not start? Or it gets even deeper and it goes to the past of why did I have a family that was so dysfunctional? Why do things happen in my family but not in this person's family? Or it's to things of depression or addiction or to different struggles and and insecurities we all have and we all wonder why. Why are those things in my life? I don't know what they are for you or if you've had things in the past, but if you haven't had them in the past, you'll have them in the future because there's a certain inevitability of this. This is an issue that hits all of us. It's an issue that not only is hard to respond to, but is a question and an issue that every single person at some level and at some point in time is going to ask. In fact, in many regards, I think Jesus was familiar with the issue. Isaiah 53, predicting Jesus to come, will say that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Uh, the Apostle Paul, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, was in affliction and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors in sleeplessness and in hunger. The Apostle Paul was quite familiar with that life was rough. Life had struggle. Life beat you down at times. There's certain suffering and there's certain evil that comes with life and that is inevitable in the kind of experiences that you and I are going to have. No one is protected from it. I'll tell you guys, for many regards, for myself and for Marcy, We've had a great life in, in, in many ways. Sure, we've had struggles and frustrations, but I don't think that we were people that really were equated with suffering, nor were we really even equated or, or familiar with grief until about November 2008. Some of you guys that have been with us since we started Southwood know our story, know kind of what we've walked through. But um, in November 2008, Marcy was five months pregnant. I'd gone to, we had done a wedding in uh, uh, West Texas and had come back, and later that night on a Sunday night, Marcy, all of a sudden her water broke. And all of a sudden, an hour after we had gotten home, we were in the emergency room, and a couple days later, we are delivering a baby boy that didn't make it. So five months into a pregnancy, it ended prematurely, and all of a sudden, two days later, we are at a funeral graveside burying a little baby boy in a way and in a time that we never foresaw and never could see. In fact, we had lost a baby prior to that in a pregnancy, and so in many regards, for the last two years, we have walked through things that I could never have imagined that have changed who we are completely. In many regards, it's made us familiar with this issue, an issue that had seemed previously completely theoretical and completely intellectual. (laughs) 
But I'll tell you guys, as we kind of walk through this this morning, this is an issue and this is an area of life that we have become all too familiar with now. In many regards, the things that we've walked through may not at all pale or may pale in comparison to the things that you've walked through in your past. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've walked through. I don't know, in a sense, the scars and the baggage that you carry, but it's an issue that everyone is asking or everyone will ask at some point. And so the question is, how do you respond? (laughs) What happens in life and how do you respond to it and where is God in it? That's kind of where we're headed this morning. Um, it's not a morning that, frankly, I've been looking forward to. <laughs> it is a hard issue. It's not a fun, interpretive issue. It's, it's right at the ground of where you and I live, and it's right at some of the sore spots in our life and right at some of the places that are most vulnerable in our life. And so that's where we're headed this morning, all right? Um, it's not going to be the most lighthearted, fun, feely, uh, touch-a-good morning. It's not the kind of morning that you get in a Hallmark card, but this is where we are, and this is life, and so we're going to address it because it is one of the hardest issues out there. How do you address it? What does the Scripture say? We spent a couple mornings, uh, a couple Sundays already this semester talking about the nature of absolute truth, talking about whether the Bible is reliable. And so really from here on out and and starting really this morning, we're going to leave philosophy aside and we're going to go straight to the scriptures because the scriptures are going to say a ton about this issue. The scriptures don't hide from the fact that, that suffering and evil is present out there and is an inevitable experience that you and I will have. In fact, that's really my first point this morning, that evil and suffering are predictable. Um, if you guys, uh, I'll kind of throw you a few verses. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, Paul says, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. <laughs> Paul says, hey, suffering and evil is not just predictable, but it is inevitable. He'll say on a different side of the coin in, in Philippians 1 that not only is it inevitable, but it's actually a privilege for the believer of God. He says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul's point is, hey, what you saw in Christ you now see in me, and what you see in me and you saw in Christ you're going to see in yourself. And not only is it going to be inevitable, but it is actually a privilege for the people of God. <laughs> Again, not a Hallmark card idea, right? <laughs> Uh, It doesn't make you feel good. Uh, But the scriptures are clear that, hey, this is an inevitable reality of life. In fact, I I tell you guys, I think the most thriving, uh, healthy, in a way, uh, heresy in the American church today is this idea. That what God wants for you first and foremost is for you to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. And that anything that would contradict that is unbiblical is what this heresy would say in our churches today. In fact, I would say tell you guys that the churches that are the largest, the books that sell the most, the pastors that are the most popular... That's their message. What God wants for you is for you to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. And yet I think the scriptures would fly right in the face of that because the reality of evil and the reality of suffering is such that you won't always be healthy, healthy, happy, and wealthy. And for the churches that are holding to that idea, they're holding to it because it brings people in and it's incredibly popular because no one wants to hear that you may suffer. <laughs> but that's exactly what the scriptures say, and that's where we're going to go this morning, all right? That it's predictable. And so since it's predictable, you shouldn't be surprised by it. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 4, he'll say, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. (laughs) Suffering should not surprise you. Tragedy, when it strikes, it should not be a surprise. It's a surprise in that you don't know when it's coming, but it's not a surprise if it's going to come. It will hit all of us. And so the question is that we all begin to ask, and that's kind of where we're going to go next, is why? (laughs) If it's inevitable, the question we always ask when, when it finally does hit is why? And usually the question of why isn't why on a generic level, but it's why particular to me. Why am I getting cancer, but not him? Why did we lose a baby, but not them? Why am I going through this now, and I can't find a date, but all three of my roommates are? Why am I suffering and so insecure and so lonely, and yet everyone in my life seems to be getting married, seems happy, romantic, and Valentine's is coming up, and it seems wonderful, right? But not me. 
You know, and so honestly, for many of us, the issue I'm trying to hit for you guys is it's not just on a big scale, it's on a small scale. And it doesn't matter the scale of it, it is all something that hits us, and the question we always ask is, why? Why me? Unfortunately, the scriptures don't give us a lot of answers as to why. I'm going to give you guys a few answers, but really what I want to show you guys is that if God is not primarily concerned that you're healthy, happy, and wealthy, when suffering hits, the thing you can know is it's not because you have sin or because you lack faith. For those that will argue that God wants you to be healthy, happy, and wealthy, if you're not healthy, happy, and wealthy, they'll submit to you that something's wrong, that you've done something wrong. Some of you guys have walked through things in your past, and I will submit to you that there's nothing that you did wrong that brought that on. One of the first things you guys need to hear this morning in the midst of whatever scar you may have is that you did not earn that, merit that, or you should not have received that ever to begin with. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing that you did that should have merited that, and you need to hear that. God's not angry at you and he's not brought something at you because you've done something wrong. Ultimately, we're going to get a few uh, responses in the scriptures as to why it exists, but the the responses we're going to get are never particular to you, but they're generic with regard to the universe, regard to the human experience. I'm going to give you guys a few examples. Uh, uh, To begin with Romans chapter 8, Paul will write this. He says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying this, that when Adam and Eve ate the apple, they passed on a condition and a depravity to the human race that was not restricted just to the human race. (laughs) That when you and I are born, we're born hostile to God. But what Paul is trying to say is that that issue, that hostility, that alienation to God was not just a part of the human race, but it was respective to and corresponding also to creation. Everything that you see and everything that you experience, not just spiritually, but physically, emotionally, everything at some point has gone wrong. There's something wrong with all that you see. And there's a day that's coming when it will all be restored and all be righted, but that is not this day. And creation is experiencing it as well. And it's not just your experience, but creation also is waiting for a day to come in which it will be redeemed and fixed. (laughs) And everything will be fixed. That's one of the first things you're going to see. The second thing is this. Um, actually, if you look uh, throughout the Gospels, for example, in, in uh, John chapter thir- or Luke chapter 13, a tower falls and kills 18 people. The people generically and inevitably ask why. No answer to why is to the tower falling on those 18. John 9, a man is born blind. The people uh, naturally ask why. Why was this man born blind but not this man? The response they get is not what you would expect. It wasn't because the parents sinned. It wasn't because of the individual sin. The person had not done anything to make them culpable for what they experienced. Instead, Jesus is going to give a little bit of a different answer and begin to take it a different direction. This is what we find in John 9. It was neither that this man sinned that he was born blind nor that his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I'm showing you John 9. I want to begin to transition you to this. The scriptures are very unclear as to when you and I ask why, there's two kinds of responses to a why question. One is a cause. One of the why questions, or when we ask why, what we're looking for is a cause that led to it. The scriptures almost never give us a cause for it. We get Romans 8, that all of creation, all the world has fallen. We get Job 1, we get a picture that Satan has come before God and wanted to make uh, Job suffer. And so you get some sense that maybe creation has gone wrong. You get a sense that satanic opposition could cause suffering and opposition in the world. But even more, what you really get far more clearly and far more strongly throughout the scriptures is a sense of what God is going to do in the aftermath of it. Not, not why did it get created or why was it caused, but what is God going to work in the aftermath of it? And so a better question may not be, or maybe not why did it happen, but what is God going to do in it and after it? And that issue, what we're going to see from the scriptures, is the scriptures give a ton of reasons of what God is going to do in the aftermath of it. But let me say real quick and first off, before we even begin to transition there, 
that the purposes and what God can do in the aftermath of evil don't make evil justified. Evil is never good, and it does not matter what comes in the aftermath of it. It is never good to bury a child. It is never good when a husband dies because of cancer. Two different things that have happened both within the last two weeks at our church, okay? Children have passed away. Husbands have died because of cancer. It is never good. God can work some good out of it, and he can do some things beyond what you could expect, but it is never good. It is never justified. It is never something God delights in. That makes sense? What we're going to begin to see, and really the encouragement for the believer in the midst of a, a presence and reality of evil and suffering that's predictable, is that it is also purposeful. That it is not pointless. That it is not random. It is not without point, without plan, without the sovereignty of God somehow working in and through it and after it. And so what do the scriptures say? What, what, what is the result of it? If you guys will turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to kind of camp out a little bit this morning. If you go turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm not going to have it up on the screen. I'm going to kind of read it to you guys. And Peter's going to begin to unfold for us what God can do in the aftermath of evil and suffering. What God has intended through it. Not that it is worthy or it makes it evil okay or that you and I were ever to be in peace with it. But it shows us in a sense of what God can still do and what we should be looking for in the aftermath of it. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls." Well, what in the world can God do in the midst of, of, of suffering and evil that's predictable? In what way can it be purposeful? In what way can God do something from the aftermath of it? First thing I think you see in verses uh, 3 to 6 of chapter 1 is that it can highlight our hope to come. Uh, in verses 3 to 5, Peter's going to lay out this hope that we have. He says it's a living hope. He says it's, a, uh, it's an inheritance. It's imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. It's reserved and it's protected by the power of God. So it unpacks this hope that we have that's future-oriented. Then he says in verse 6, it says, In this hope that I just described, verses 3 to 5, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Notice the reality of suffering is that it's predictable. But notice what suffering does. Notice what Peter's going to say that it can produce, that it can do for you and I. And he'll say this. He says that it causes you and I to rejoice in a hope that we already have. And the reality of that hope, though, is that for many of us, as we live life out, we begin to pursue life in such a way that we, all we want to do is, in a sense, soothe an ache that we feel inside. And so our whole present lives become about padding our lives, creating comforts, creating uh, insecurities. We're creating securities and barring and protecting and padding our lives so that we don't feel an ache within. And in reality, what evil and suffering does and tragedy comes in as it hits our lives is that it shows that the present will never satisfy and it will never soothe the ache that you and I have. Because there's something wrong with the present. And what suffering does is, it, in a sense, it shuts down and it breaks all your false securities you had in life. And it shows you that what you're ultimately hoping for and what you're ultimately depending upon is a day to come in which this will all be removed and this is not the experience that you and I will have. And for many of us, we get so soothed and so satisfied in the present and evil and suffering comes in and it utterly breaks that and it shatters that. And it does it in such a way that you and I begin to rejoice and begin to be reminded afresh and again of a hope to have that's coming in the future that is so distinct and so different than today. 
Because today this is not all there is and there's got to be something more. For those that have a view of the kingdom of God that it, that it is here and that it is now, I'd respond back, man, that is so little to hope for. I'm hoping in a day in which it is so different than today and the kingdom that's coming and what God is going to do in the future because that is the hope I have. If this is all there is, man, this is pitiful. There's something horribly wrong with today. If you were to stand in a funeral, if you were to go, many will read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and will speak of death, where is your sting? But the reality of today is that the sting of death is everywhere. And it is more real at a funeral than it can ever be. But the day that we're hoping for is not graveside at a funeral, bedside at a hospital, but we're hoping for a day to come that is so entirely different than what you and I see and experience today. And tragedy comes in, suffering comes in, and it awakens us to that. In a sense, it pulls the band-aid off that we had been soothing our ache and, our, and our, uh, that which caused a yearning within, and it strips that off and it reveals that it can't be satisfied today by anyone or anything any time today. In fact, uh, I ran across a quote this week from, um, actually it was read at a funeral I'd been to, um, of a Yale philosopher who lost an adult son in a mountain climbing accident. And someone a year after his son's death asked him this, asked his wife this. He said, are you beginning to live at peace with Eric's death? That a year removed, are you now at peace with what happened? Are you now okay with it? And this was his response. He said this, peace, shalom, is the fullness of life in all dimensions. Shalom is dwelling in justice and delight with God, with neighbor, with self, in nature. Death is Shalom's mortal enemy. Death is demonic. We cannot live at peace with death. When the writer of Revelation spoke of the coming of the day of Shalom, he did not say that on that day we would live at peace with death. He said that on that day there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I shall try to keep the wound from healing and recognition of our living still in the old order of things. I shall try to keep it from healing and solidarity with those who sit beside me on humanity's morning bench. What I love about this idea, what I love about this quote is, is for you and I, I think most of the life that we live, most of what we're trying to do is avoid pain. We just want everything to be okay. As, as, a, as a husband, as a dad now, even as a pastor, for most of the time, for what I want for you guys, for my wife, for my kids, I just want everything to be okay. I want everything to be pain-free. I want that for my own life. But the reality of life is it is not pain-free. And in reality, in the scars that hit and the things that hit us in our life, what I love about this idea is that for many of us, what we're trying to do is remove the pain of it so that we're okay with it. And what this guy's going to say is, hey, you should never be okay with it. In fact, he's going to go on so far as to say that, in fact, he's going to try to prevent that wound from healing. He's going to keep it as an open wound because it reminds him that this is not all that there is, that there's a day that's coming. And what it begins to do for the people that have had those kinds of scars is it begins to absolutely change who they are. I'll guarantee you, after they lost their adult son, they were never the same kind of people again. And the second thing that I think tragedy, evil, and suffering does in our life, not that it makes it good, but what it can do and what it can produce in our lives is that it absolutely changes who you and I are. It was never meant to make us satisfied. The present was never meant to make us satisfied. And what evil and suffering does is it actually transforms and changes us as people, and we are never the same again. Some of y'all are who you are because of the scars and because of the things you've gone through. And if you were to always go back to who you were, that would be almost unhealthy and almost wrong. The question is, in the midst of what's happened to you, who are you going to become and what is it going to do in your life? What James, what Peter, what we're going to look at some of these verses here in a minute are going to say that it has the potential and it has the ability to transform, purify, and change your very character. If you guys look at verse 7 and back in 1 Peter, Peter says, all these things happen so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. The idea is that what trials, tragedy, suffering, evil do is that they actually transform, they refine your faith. They press you on to maturity. 
John will say, everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. But for those that have a hope fixed on the future, it absolutely purifies their present and it changes the course of their present pursuits. That when you're so fixed on the day to come and you're so satisfied and looking and yearning for what is to come, you begin to change what you pursue in the present and the reasons you pursue things in the present. It has a means to actually purify your lives. James will say it this way. He says, The testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance produces so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's something in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty that has an ability to redemptively and transformatively mature you and press you into the image of Jesus Christ. Again, it doesn't justify it. It doesn't make it good, but it has an ability to grow and transform you. You will grow far more in the midst of trial and difficulty than you will in prosperity. In the midst of of trial, in the midst of yearning, in the midst of struggle, you will grow far more than in prosperity and in easiness. Because it is in the difficulty that you have to cling to Christ and it is in the difficulty that you're pressed and pushed and depending on Him and pressing towards Him. Honestly, I mentioned this a minute ago, but I think for many of us, if you're anything like me, the two things you want to avoid are hunger and pain, all right? Hunger for me, for sure. Pain also. I will do anything I have to do to avoid pain. So if I'm hiking on a mountainside and a bee is running around me, all of a sudden I bolt, okay? I don't want to be stung. I've never been stung, and I'm terrified of being stung, okay? Uh, Also... High school, I fall playing basketball. I break my wrist. My mom takes me to the emergency room. I'm sitting there waiting on a doctor, and I am about as pale as can be because I'm in horrible pain. Um, just It didn't go compound, thank goodness, but in the midst of getting x-rays, in the midst of waiting, I'm just nauseous. I'm going pale. I want to faint. I'm uncomfortable. And part of why I'm so uncomfortable is because I know there's another pain coming that's going to have to fix this. That in the midst of life, there's always an initial traumatic pain. That's what is the tragedy. That is what is the evil. But in order to be redeemed, in order to be restored, in order to be healed from it, there is a subsequent painful process that must happen. So when I'm sitting there with a broken wrist, what happens? Doctor comes in, takes some x-rays, see what's happening, and then they're going to try to reset it. So they begin to pull my elbow and my wrist apart. They're going to try to shift it. So what do I do as an avoider of pain? Time out freak me out, knock me out. So I go unconscious. They put the sleepy gas on me. They knock me out completely. I wake back up, bone reset, cast on. Wonderful plan. I loved it, right? Because I avoided the pain that had to fix it, right? Okay, maybe you're like me or maybe you think I'm a wimp. I don't know. Either way, in the midst of life, there's always an initial traumatic painful event, okay? The reality though, for you to be transformed and for you to be restored and healed from that painful event, there's a subsequent painful process that must happen. But for you and I that want to avoid pain, you and I almost will always at times avoid that painful healing process so we don't have to experience pain. And then what happens is you and I are never transformed. You and I are never healed. We're never pressed and matured through that experience. And for many of us in the midst of psychological, emotional, physical issues that have happened in our life, there's not a doctor who's got anesthesia that's going to knock you out and allow you to be healed without being conscious of it and actually experiencing the pain of it. But for many of you guys, I want to challenge you all this morning. One of the things I'm going to push you guys on is this. In the midst of whatever you've walked through, you're going to have scars and you're going to have baggage. The question is, have you been willing to actually endure the pain of actually walking through that and being healed from it? So many of us actually bury things and try to press things so far from our conscious that we actually don't feel the pain anymore. And what we've done over time is that we've actually dulled the pain to such an extent that we just can find a way to live on. But in the reality of it is there's a pain that's got to come to heal us from that and actually move us past it. And so for many of you guys, you've actually buried things so far that to actually bring it back out and address what happened in your past or what's happening now is an incredibly painful process. 
But until you actually bring it out and address it, you will never be healed and transformed and restored from it. For some of y'all, y'all have actually brought it out and looked at it and dealt with it, but you've actually never forgiven the person that caused it. And the idea of letting go and the idea of actually forgiving is even more painful than the initial event in some regards. But until you forgive and until you go through that subsequent painful process, you will never be restored, healed, and pressed forward into the image of God. Some of you all, because of things you've walked through in the past, have, have gone on to a pattern of decisions, either codependency or the ways that you walk through relationships that are harmful, that are disobedient, and that don't honor God. And the reality is, unless you look at what's happening in your life, you won't realize that you're actually functioning in a way that's dysfunctional. And unless you actually realize as well that what you're doing in life isn't actually honoring God and the idea of obedience actually seems incredibly painful, you can continue to press on in a self-destructing pattern. The reality of going to counseling, the reality of addressing things in your life with a friend, a trusted person, the reality of having to let go and forgive someone, those are realities that are incredibly painful. But until you begin to press through those and until you begin to actually obey God and endure the pain that that looks like and feels like, you're actually never going to find healing and you're never going to find restoration and you're never going to find transformation and all that God would want to do in the aftermath of that. It wasn't your fault that certain things happened. <laughs> but it is your response, it is your responsibility of who you're going to be in the aftermath of it and how it's going to affect you. So my question for you this morning is, have you buried things so far? And are you so avoiding pain in your life that you've never actually processed through certain things, nor have you actually forgiven certain people in your life and let things go? And have you continued down a path that's actually in disobedience to God because you fear the pain that will come from actually obeying? Some of you guys are in relationships and you're so fearful of the pain of that separation of a relationship you know you shouldn't be in that you continue to press forward in disobedience because you don't want pain. But the reality is if you will obey, you're going to experience an initially bigger pain, but the restoration and the healing that comes in the aftermath of that feels far better and is far more redemptive and transformative and making you whole again. The God we worship is a God who restores, a God who heals, a God who fixes. And for whatever reason, God at times has not allowed or has allowed certain things to hit our lives that are inevitable and that are real. And the question is, and the response we have is, how are we going to respond in the aftermath of it? Who are we going to be? Are we going to continue to complain and blame? Are we going to actually take responsibility, forgive, process, deal with it, and move on and become the kind of people God would hope us to be, but people that are for sure changed, people that are not the same? That's my challenge. That's what I hope for you guys this morning. You guys kind of walk through this as we continue to move through this. The third thing, though, I think suffering and evil can do in our lives is this. Not only does it provide for you and highlight the hope that we have, not only does it begin to transform who you are, but the third thing that it begins to do is this, that it can intensify your intimacy with Christ. The third thing it does in the midst of evil, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial and difficulty is it gives you a clear and a deeper sense of who Jesus Christ is as you know him better. In fact, if you guys will look at, uh, back in 1 Peter 1, verse 8, Peter writes, And though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It's interesting to me in verse 8 that Peter's going to say that for those that can endure and be transformed through trial, they're the kind of people that know and love Christ deeply. Um, in fact, in James chapter 1, if you guys are in our, our small groups, James tells us that blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In the midst of the things that occur in your life, the question that gets hit at you is, what do you love more? Do you love the things that you just lost, or do you love Jesus Christ? Because if you will cling to Christ, you will realize that he can restore and fix so much of what you walked through. And the kind of people that walk through it restoratively and healed and transformed are the kind of people that know Christ even deeper and that fall in love with him even more. Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband, wrote this, Knowing Jesus must include sharing his sufferings by reproducing the pattern of his death. 
Instead, in seeking first for escape from suffering, the soul hungry to know Christ will seek in it the means to know him. The great irony of suffering, though, is that it is inevitable that you and I wonder not only why, but where is God? Uh, Martha in John 11 will say, as she lost her brother, uh, she'll say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's question is, where were you? <laughs> it, it seems that suffering can cause us to know Christ better, and yet, in the midst of suffering, the question we so often ask is, where is God? <laughs> That which seems to cause us to know him better also seems to be that which seems to cause him to seem so far away. Where is he? In fact, in, the, in Psalms in the Old Testament, as the uh, enemies of God, the people of God, taunt the people of God, they always ask them this, where is your God now? <laughs> as foreign nations ransack Israel, as they beat them, as they punish them, as they take them captive, they always taunt them and they say, hey, where is your God? The great question in the midst of suffering is, where is God? The question we always ask, it seems so ironic because that which was meant to cause us to know Christ, to have a fellowship in his sufferings, is the very experience that causes us to wonder where God is. Where is he? He sure seems absent in the midst of what's happening. One of my favorite quotes is from a professor I had at seminary, and he wrote this. A professor whose son was born Down syndrome, and he wrote this. He said, in suffering, God may be found precisely where he was on Good Friday identifying with us in our suffering, acting to resolve that suffering in ways we may not see or imagine, and yet sovereign in the heavens, accomplishing his eternal, though mysterious, purposes. I love that idea. In the midst of suffering, the question we always ask is, where is God? And as you look at the cross, what you realize is God is in the midst of suffering, right where he was on the cross, suffering with us, identifying with us, and moving to fix the very problem that's causing suffering itself. And at the cross, Christ actually did fix the issue and a day will come when it will be removed because of what he did on the cross and his resurrection that followed. But at the cross, I think you see a few things. One, you see this, that Christ identifies with us in whatever we're experiencing. Second of all, you see that our evaluation of goodness is not always right on until you see the aftermath of things. No one would have looked at the cross and saw the Son of God crucified and thought something good was happening. No one would have declared that it was Good Friday until they saw the Sunday that followed. Three days later when the Son of God was resurrected and showed he had power over death and sin, power to fix death, to fix sin, and to remove it once and for all. But again, that day is not yet. The thing of death is still here and Christ will in a day to come will remove it, but he has shown that he can. And in the midst of whatever you're experiencing, Christ is one who can identify with you in it and he's right there in it, right where he's always been, not absent and still sovereign. And in the midst of the question of if in suffering, if he is sovereign and good, how could there be evil? I think what you see at the cross is that just because his hands are still does not mean that his hands are tied. At the cross, the father's hands were still, but it did not mean that they were tied or that he could not move them. But he chose in his sovereignty to allow it because there's a goodness to come, a goodness that did not make what occurred on the cross good in any way, shape, or form, but it showed that he was sovereign and that he was, could see broader than we can see. And more often than not, in the midst of our suffering, we cannot see where God is. And we more often than not can never see any good that could come. And yet what you see at the cross is that good can come. Not that it justifies the evil, but God has a purpose and a plan beyond what we can anticipate. One of the things I wrestle with, and you guys have wrestled with it, and it's the question we start off with is, if God is sovereign and that he's all good, how could he allow evil? Either he's not one of those. As you guys remember, if we walked through the book of Ruth last fall, um, kind of same cha- thing hit us, chapter 1 of the book of Ruth. A family is in a foreign nation. All securities, all men are, are killed off in a sense. You have a book about women. You guys remember in the sense of uh, these women were looking for security. And one of the things we argued was that if you have a view of a God who's not sovereign nor good, if you remove either of those attributes, you land in a place in which you will never find peace in the midst of suffering and in the midst of tragedy. The only way that you will find and experience peace in the midst of suffering and tragedy is if you continue to trust that God is good and that he's sovereign. 
I used this illustration uh, last semester, but I think it, it illustrates it better than anything I could do, and that's this. Uh, this is our dog, Millie, all right? Uh, some of you guys remember Millie. Y'all may remember, remember this illustration, but um, this was uh, about two years ago at Halloween. Uh, my wife and sister-in-law decided to dress Millie up. Uh, this was at Halloween, so they got her a hot dog outfit. What you, what you can't see from the picture is that that outfit was about twice the length of her body. And if you had a profile shot, what you'd also realize is that her back was caving in underneath the weight of it, all right? Uh, she did not love the hot dog costume, okay? Uh, second thing, here's another picture. Uh, they kept going, and they found her a dress. Um, and one of the things you may notice here is that our dog, while precious, is not the most photogenic. Uh, she has a wonderful personality, and, and she hates being dressed up, okay? Uh, what you see on her face is not a look of peace, security, but what you see on her face is a look of utter terror, right? Um, in fact, when they put this dress on her, she barely moved, okay? Uh, she was just in horrible terror and horrible shock. Because what you see, what happens when you have sovereignty and control, but you don't have goodness, is that, okay? <laughs> if you have a God who's sovereign and he's not good, what you have is terror, right? Okay? The flip side of that is this. Uh, this actually came from an email titled, uh, Why Dogs Bite People, okay? Okay? Uh, <laughs> But uh, on the flip side is this. If you have goodness but you don't have control, what you guys do at Valentine's is you find a dog that you want to actually try to charm a woman with, right? So in your head you think, hey, I'll have this little dog walk up with a rose at a picnic. It'll be precious. The reality is you have a goodness but you don't have control because you cannot control what that dog is going to do. More than likely it's going to urinate over your little romantic picnic, right? Because when you have goodness but you don't have control, you cannot create security. So if you remove the goodness of God or if you remove the sovereignty of God, you land in either terror or urinated on picnic, right? Okay, The idea is this, God has to be sovereign and he has to be good in order for you to find security and peace in the midst of suffering. Suffering is going to come. The question is, who do you believe God is and what do you believe he can do in the midst of it? Because you are going to experience it. And if you cannot trust and cling to Christ and know him deeper in it, you're going to land in a place that is incredibly terrorizing and incredibly scary. God has to be sovereign and he has to be good for you to experience peace. My hope for you guys as you kind of walk through things, as you guys are thinking about the past, is that you could cling to Christ, trusting that he is who he says he is, he is what the scriptures say he is, and that sometimes we can't always determine and evaluate goodness in the moment things are happening, but that we can trust that he is good and however he evaluates goodness in whatever he's doing. Last thing I want to encourage you guys with is this. The fourth thing that I think suffering can do in our lives is that it can extend your empathy. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It's kind of a mouthful. All right, here's the idea. Uh, for those that have walked through different things, as God has comforted them as they found God in the midst of it, they become the very dispensers of the comfort of God that they've received. I'll tell you guys, the things we walked through in November 2008 have become the very means by which we began able to comfort those that are walking through the same thing. So a couple months ago, uh, some dear college friends of ours went into labor 24 weeks, uh, four weeks after us, but way too early uh, in a pregnancy, and they're spending three months in a hospital in a NICU, and, and Marcy's been able to go down and comfort them because we understand what they're walking through. I want to encourage you guys in the midst of whatever you're walking through that you desperately need people. Um, For you guys, if you're walking through something, let me encourage you guys that you've got to reach out and you've got to let people know. Um, It's interesting to me that in 1 Peter 5, Peter writes this, but resist the enemy, Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. What suffering and what tragedy can do for many of you is it can isolate you. What the enemy of God wants to do in the midst of your tragedy is isolate you into a place that you think that you're the only one experiencing what you're experiencing. And if you're here this morning and you're walking through something, if you walked through something in the past, let me plead with you to invite some people into it. 
you are not walking through something that someone else has not walked through. And what you're walking through, people need to jump into with you and you need to invite them in. Otherwise, you're never going to find community. You're never going to find a way out of it. You need the counsel and you need the community of God. For those of you who maybe aren't walking through something, let me encourage you guys, you need to join and, and get a part of a small group. The reason we challenge you guys to get in small groups is not because we want to pad our numbers on a Tuesday night, but we want you guys to get in community with one another, not because you may need it, but because others may. You need to be the comfort and the counsel and the community of God to someone else. And that never happens on a Sunday morning. That's why we always talk about small groups. Not just that you would find community, but that you could give and provide community to someone else who may be walking through something that you may have walked through already, but you will never know them and you'll never be able to dispense the very comfort that you've received. And so can you actually become the kind of people that invite people into it? And can you be the kind of person that invites and provides community and counsel and comfort to those that are walking through the same things that you've already walked through? You guys are all in the same stage of life. You guys are all walking through the same kinds of experiences and the same kinds of struggles, and you guys desperately need one another. I don't know what you've walked through in the past. I don't know where you've been. I don't know if you've been part of dysfunctional families, if you've been hurt by relationships, if you've been hurt by people or by churches or by parents or whatever. I don't know where you've been. My hope for you guys is not that you would rationalize or justify what's happened in your life, but that you would call it evil. (laughs) that you would recognize that it was inevitable. The question is, God has designed and has allowed and set things up so that you could walk in the aftermath of it, find hope, find peace, find joy, be restored, be transformed, be redeemed from it. That's my hope for you guys. It's something that cannot occur just in and of yourself. It's something that occurs through the community and the people of God as well. We need one another, and that's my hope for you guys. I'm going to kind of close with a story you may have heard before, but uh, I gave you guys a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, who, whose husband, along with four other men, passed away and were actually murdered by uh, 60 Aka Indians. Um, and it occurred in a year in which an Ecuadorian newspaper would actually uh, publish on the front cover of their newspaper a picture of these five missionary men uh, slain on a riverside. And the caption above the, the picture said, Why this waste? As an Ecuadorian newspaper looked at suffering and tragedy in the world, their conclusion was two things. One, the cost that these men paid would never be redeemed, never worthwhile. The second thing that they declared was that there was not a God that was sovereign over it. It was just pointless and it was wasteful. My hope for you guys is you guys would walk through and hear the rest of that story of that Akhet Indian tribe that would come to faith and, and of a woman that would walk with God and, and proclaim his goodness and his glory is that God can do some things in the midst of whatever you're walking through. Uh, there's been a couple that's walked through some things here at our church whose husband just passed away. The first year of their marriage, they realized that the husband was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He battled that for seven years, and the wife who just buried him just about a week ago said this when it first happened. She said, there's two options that are going to happen. Either A, my husband is going to be miraculously healed, in which case God will get all the glory. Or B, he will not be healed, and God will get all the glory by the way that I walk through it, the way that I trust him, the way that I know him deeper through it. The question is, how will you respond to what you've walked through? Who are you going to be? What kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to trust God in the midst of it? And will you have the courage to endure even more pain to process through and become whole and healed through it? That's my hope for you guys. And no matter where you are, I'd love to encourage you guys. If you guys need to talk to someone, we're up here. I'd love to talk to you guys afterwards. You can email me. You can call or find a trusted friend. Be honest with some people. Invite some people into your lives. That's my hope for you guys. So let me pray for us to close this, and we'll wrap things up. Father God, we give you great thanks. that you are not a creator and one who has then left creation and stood from afar, but you are one who brought and gave your only son, who came in human flesh, who lived a perfect life, and then who died on our behalf, who suffered and received the very uh, punishment with which we deserve for our sin, one who was intimately acquainted with grief, intimately acquainted with sorrow. 
and one who endured well and because of that was exalted and received glory and honor and gave you glory and honor as, as he did it and walked through it, Lord. My hope for us this morning as we walk through things, as we kind of walk and leave from here, Lord, I pray that for those of us that are walking through things, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to address it and to look at it. I pray that you would meet us in it, that we would find you right in the middle of it. I mean, that we would find you right where we find you on Good Friday, identifying with us in it, moving to overcome it, and looking forward to a day in which we will see it all gone. And Father, I pray that you would give us greater faith, that you would give us an experience of joy, that you would highlight our hope, and that you would give us a, a depth of love for you that would be astonishing to the world that would watch. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Guys, before you all take off, let me tell you all kind of where we're going uh, next week. Valentine's, gentlemen, mark your calendars, not for sex, but mark your calendars for Valentine's, all right? Um, <laughs> And I don't know why, but on Valentine's, we're going to talk about sex. So um, we're actually going to start the next three Sundays. We're going to kind of, actually, sex will be kind of the umbrella for which we're going to talk through a bunch of stuff. We'll talk a little bit about, generically, what does the Bible say about sex next Sunday. The Sunday after that, we're going to talk about sanctity of life and the issue of abortion. Um, and the Sunday after that, we're going to talk through uh, the issue of homosexuality. So it's going to be an interesting three weeks. Uh, we'd love to see you guys, and we'll walk through these issues and, and run with it together. So you guys have a great Sunday. Enjoy the Super Bowl, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>